Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld. Whether you're here today because you come to shul every Shabbat or several times a week, or you're here today because occasionally you're here for a celebration such as this, or anything in between, it's not a small thing to walk onto a synagogue this Shabbat. Given what took place at a synagogue last Shabbat outside Dallas, it takes a little bit of courage and it certainly makes a statement to walk onto a synagogue campus this Shabbat and say, I'm here and I'm ready to pray and ready to be a Jew. Maybe it's not heroic. We're not particularly nervous for good reason about our safety here. We are protected with people who are focused on our protection. Our campus is secure. But it's a way of saying to ourselves and to anyone who's listening, terrifying events at synagogues elsewhere is not going to take from us the ability to exhibit and live out our Jewish lives publicly here. We're not going to tolerate fear insinuating itself that deep into our consciousness. We're not willing to lose that. But we do lose something. We lose something every time a Jewish community or another faith community has their sacred spaces violated by danger. We lose something emotionally and we lose something as we remind ourselves what is required to preserve the very safety that we're enjoying this minute. I wrote about this a little bit in the Taste of Torah that came out in the bulletin yesterday, so some of you may have uh, read it. If you haven't yet, I'm sure all of you will rush back to your homes and read it tonight. I'll be testing you on it on Monday. And I did as I try to do often, which is to draw some inspiration from the weekly Torah reading to see what the Torah is saying to us right now. And I focused on a verse at the end of the Ten Commandments, right? After the fire and brimstone of the Ten Commandments, there's a few other rules there, right? The ten are just the first ten. They're not all the ten. And the Torah says that when the Jewish people get to the land of Israel, they're going to build a mizbech, they're going to build an altar, and they're going to build it out of stone. And the Torah says that when you take the stone from the quarry, you may not hew it, you may not strike at it with your sword to shape it into the shape that you want it, which is how actually things are built. You take raw materials, you shape it into whatever shape makes sense with the architectural plans, and you build a building. Torah says you may not bring an iron sword onto the soft stone of Jerusalem to build your altar. Why? Torah doesn't come with a lot of whys. We have to try to figure out the whys on our own. There's a rabbinic midrash in a collection called the Mechilta, which is brought by the commentary Rashi, who says the following. The altar, the Mizbeach, is built in order to increase peace and harmony in the world between us and other people and between us and the Holy One. It's an instrument of coming together. And iron is the material that's used to make a spear and a weapon and a sword. And in our era, the very weapons that are protecting us today. 
And so the Mechilta says, it would be an unacceptable incongruity to take the material that is used to build an instrument of death and violence and destruction and use it even in the service of building a beautiful altar at which you're going to pray to God. It's an important lesson and it makes it that much more painful to realize that we have to violate that exhortation every time we try to secure a campus such as this one. We're violating that midrash. We're surrounded by iron. We're surrounded by guns. Ten years ago, it would have been inconceivable to imagine that a synagogue in Los Angeles would need armed security guards to make sure that the people inside would not be killed when they came to pray. And now it seems nearly inconceivable. No, it's not unanimous. Even amongst our leadership, it's not unanimous. But it seems nearly inconceivable that would make ourselves vulnerable on Shabbat without having iron guns out there to protect us. And so we live with that paradox and a recognition of what we surrender when we try to make ourselves secure and that in order to protect this campus, and we will do so, we have to profane it on some level by allowing weapons that cause destruction to protect a campus that is focused on spiritual elevation. That's a hard thing to walk through those doors every day, past that gun, past that wand, knowing that that is what is required to make this space of peace be actually peaceful. But living with paradoxes is something that our faith reminds us is present all the time. And I'm thinking about another paradox that comes out if you think of the warnings and the exhortations that God gave to the Jewish people before and after the very revelation that we read about today. God gives basically two instructions to the Jewish people around revelation. One of them is, Be ready. This is a big deal, this cataclysmic event that's going to happen at Sinai. Be ready. It's not necessarily going to be easy to live through. And, Don't be afraid. I, God, am not coming here to destroy you or to wipe you off the face of the earth, but to be in relationship with you and to hold you. Be ready, exclamation point. Don't be afraid, smiley face. At the same time, when you think about what my colleague did when he became an unasked-for hero last Shabbat in Colleyville, Texas, if you read all the articles about how he held himself throughout the ordeal, there are two main actions that this rabbi did. What did he do? He threw a chair and he served tea. He served tea to a person who appeared at the door of the synagogue and says, I'm lonely, I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, can I come in and warm myself with a cup of tea? And at that moment, Rabbi Charlie was following the al Ra'u, do not be afraid, part of the of the Parsha. Wasn't afraid, come in. This is whether you're a member or not, come into our campus. I'll make you a cup of tea myself, which he did. And then when the lamb exposed himself as a wolf, he had to follow the other half of the warning from the Parsha, which is to be ready and to be prepared. And to make sure he knew how to protect himself, if at all possible, and those he was there to serve. And that's what he did when he threw the chair. 
and somehow the Jewish people find themselves constantly serving tea and throwing chairs, being ready for just about anything and trying not to be afraid, all the while protecting Jewish peoplehood and Jewish lives and also the lives and the well-being of people of other faiths whenever and if ever they find themselves under attack. And what is it that we're protecting? What is so worthy of Jewish peoplehood, of Jewish consciousness, of Jewish identity, that it deserves this protection? It may sound like a strange, obvious question. Why wouldn't it be worth preserving? But what is so special about it? To partially answer that question, I want to bring a teaching that I heard this week from my friend and colleague, Rabbi Gordon Tucker, who for many years was the dean of the rabbinical school at JTS, where I studied to be the rabbi. He was dean before I was there, and then served a congregation in White Plains, New York, for 20 or so years before he retired from that position a few years ago. And he was talking to me about a couple of verses elsewhere in the Bible, not this week's Parsha, from the book of Ruth, the book that we read on the holiday of Shavuot. And he says something very interesting appears if you look at the first chapter of the book of Ruth and the beginning of the second chapter of the book of Ruth. What happens in that section? You have Moabite women, strangers to the Jews, even amongst people that the Jews were meant to make even more strange, according to the Torah, and to not let them in. They've lost their husbands. They've lost the men in their life. In the ancient world, to be a woman without a husband there to offer you financial and other support made you the most vulnerable in society. They had nothing. They were the strangers amongst the strangers. And in trying to figure out what to do next, Ruth and Naomi, daughter-in-law and mother-in-law, have a conversation. And Naomi asks Ruth what her plan is. And Ruth says, I'm going to go to one of the fields of Judea and glean amongst the harvesters. And I'll linger behind in a field where they will treat me kindly and offer me the leftovers and make me feel welcome. It's a small little verse because the main thrust of the narrative happens after that. But Rabbi Tucker says, what did this young Moabite vulnerable woman, Ruth, know about the Jewish people? What had she heard about when she was growing up in Moab? She must have taken in the idea that if you show up at a Judean field looking needy and vulnerable and glean amongst the gleaners, they're going to be kind to you. They're not going to consider you a threat or an outsider. They're going to feed you. They're going to give you a place to lie down in comfort. They're going to take care of you. Somehow, Ruth knew that. And because she knew that, and it was true, she ends up not just joining her lot with the Jewish people, she becomes the great-great-great-grandmother of the King David. And that exposes another strange paradox that we must be alert to as we live our modern Jewish lives thousands of years later. Because there are two ways, my friends, that a potential hostage-taker could get onto our campus or any other Jewish campus with force and a weapon and with vulnerability, saying that they're in need. Someone could get onto a campus by pushing against our defenses if they brought enough weaponry of their own, or exploiting our instinct not to be defensive, 
I would hope that we would not turn away someone at our gate who looked generally safe, saying they were hungry and thirsty and wanted to find reprieve on our campus. There can indeed in our scary world be terrorists and violent haters pushing in from outside. And there can be women like Ruth who just need some kindness from us and know that a synagogue is a place to get it. So which path should we choose as we move forward from Kaliville and sit here in a synagogue on Shabbat? Should we give up compassion because it can sometimes be manipulated and used against us as it was last week? Or do we remain vigilant but never give up the reflex to invite poor gleaners into our fields or the modern versions of it? The simple truth is that compassion in every situation always makes us vulnerable. And I'm not claiming that it's an easy choice, but it's a fateful one and an inevitable one. If we want to remain a community, a synagogue, a people, a nation worth preserving and defending, the choice is both excruciating and to me obvious. And that is that we pray for peace this Shabbat and next Shabbat and we prepare for danger. We exemplify welcoming and embrace the Ruths amongst us and we are ready when and if a wolf appears from under the lamb's clothing. We thank those who serve and risk their own lives to protect us. And we continue to come in prayer and in pride to be and become the people deserving of the name Israel. So a week after Kaliville, I wish you the most heartfelt Shabbat Shalom. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.